Welcome back to another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. I'm Mike Siciliano, Dean of Students of the Upper School. I am joined today by a world-renowned expert, Dr. Leonard Sachs, author of four books for parents and a doctor with his own family practice as well. Dr. Sachs, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we've been really excited to have you, and I've had the benefit of, of already getting to hear your, your talk at our Teachers in Service, uh, which was phenomenal. I know you, you're also meeting with several groups of parents, and um, we're just thrilled to have you. Uh, maybe we could start by just, you could introduce yourself a little bit, what you do, maybe talk a little bit about your books. I know it's probably hard for me to ask you to talk about your books, <laughs> but uh, we'd, love, we'd love for you to share what those are. So uh, I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. I attended public schools, K through 12, in northeastern Ohio. I earned my undergraduate degree in biology at MIT. I then earned my doctorate in psychology and my medical degree, MD, at the University of Pennsylvania. I then did a three-year residency in family medicine, and I am a family doctor. Um, uh, I uh, went on then to write my first book, Why Gender Matters, published by Doubleday, 2005. My second book, Boys Adrift, 2007. My third book, Girls on the Edge, 2010. And then The, the Collapse of Parenting, uh, 2015. Uh, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, and Why Gender Matters have also now come out. I've written second editions, updated editions of all those books more recently. And I'm uh, currently completing the what will be the updated second edition of The Collapse of Parenting, which will be published next year. So, I mean, there's so many like amazing topics in there that uh, that I've gotten to hear you talk about and that we're going to dig into. I think um, right now, one of the things you talked about with our parents today uh, was this idea of evidence-based parenting. So why don't we start with that? I mean, what does that mean, evidence-based parenting? So one of the troubling things that many scholars have now documented about American parenting is that American parenting is really guided uh, not by research or evidence. It's guided by politics and culture. So the great pioneer of parenting research, Dana Baumrind, who, who died recently, she identified um, four parenting styles, which she called authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, and neglectful. Uh, the neglectful parent I very seldom talk about. The neglectful parents not interested in their kid and paying attention to them. Neglectful parents don't buy parenting books, so I don't even mention <laughs> no, them, actually, right. in my books. Authoritarian, authoritative, and permissive. Those terms I have found are confusing for a lot of people because authoritarian and authoritative sound the same, but they're not. Mm. And so in my books, I don't use those terms. I talk about parenting that's just right and contrasted with parenting that's too hard and parenting that's too soft. Mm. In Diana Baumrim's terms, just right would be authoritative, too hard would be authoritarian, too soft would be permissive. But I found that parents kind of seem to understand just right versus too hard versus too soft better. We all want to be the just right parent. You don't want to be too hard. You don't want to be too soft. But what the researchers have found is that over the last 30 years, American parenting has drifted, has shifted from being just right. 30 years ago, the majority of American parents would be categorized by Diana Baumrin as just right and have drifted to being too permissive, to letting kids decide. Um, so in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, I explore what that means and what does it mean to be a just right parent. Uh, so, for example, one I devote a chapter to overweight. 
1971, 4% of American kids were obese. Today, more than 20% of American kids are obese. Why is that? Well, there are several factors driving that. But one of those factors is the fact that 50 years ago, parents decided what kids would have for supper. And today, in many homes, kids decide. So I was speaking on this topic to parents in Chappaqua, New York, is an affluent suburb north of New York City. And husband and wife shared with me how they had made a healthy and nutritious supper for their son and daughter. And the son and daughter came home and said, ooh, yuck, we don't want to eat that. Can we just order pizza? And dad said, okay. And he sat down on his laptop, and the daughter dictated her order for her personal pizza with her favorite toppings. And the son dictated his order for his personal pizza with his favorite toppings. And the dad placed the order, which was delivered to the home. And I said to dad, why'd you do that? Why didn't you just tell him this is what's for supper? And the dad was shocked by my suggestion. And said, he said, I don't believe in using starvation as a means of discipline. I said, look, they're not going to starve. 50 years ago, if mom made a healthy and nutritious supper and the kids didn't want to eat it, she did not run out and buy them a pizza. She would say, this is what's for supper. If you don't like it, you can go to bed hungry. 50 years ago, parents decided what's for supper. Today, in many homes, not all, but in many homes, parents let kids decide what's for supper. Now, when you let kids decide what's for supper, there are some kids who will choose broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, spinach, <laughs> asparagus, and kale. Not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but there are other kids who will vote for a pizza, french fries, potato chips, and ice cream. Most 12-year-olds are not competent to decide what's for supper. That's why they have parents. But when parents abdicate that responsibility and let kids decide, because they read in the New York Times, they heard on National Public Radio that good parenting means letting kids decide, the result is a lot more fat kids. It's not in kids' best interest to let kids decide in domains where kids should not be the decision makers. Okay, so when you talk about evidence-based parenting, what you're saying is you've, re you've researched on a lot of fronts over 50 years what's changed, and basically that is the evidence. Like, look at, you know, obesity is a great example, right? There's a higher frequency of obesity. That's clear evidence. Why is that? And you're working backwards, and what are we parents doing based on that evidence that needs to change? Well, then there's also a chapter in my book, The Collapse of Parenting, on psychiatric diagnosis. So 1979, what was the incidence of attention deficit disorder? It was just under 1% in the United States, the same as in Great Britain, just under 1%, and boys unnumbered girls by about 8 to 1. The CDC has reported uh, that latest data, 20% of uh, high school boys, 10% of high school girls in the United States are diagnosed with ADD. Um, that's a huge change. And in the book, I look at the numbers um, and compare the numbers to the United Kingdom. An American teenage kid is now 14 times more likely to be on medication compared with a kid in the United Kingdom. Medication is used much more in this country today than it is in the United Kingdom. That wasn't true 40 years ago. And the United Kingdom, curiously, is an outlier compared to continental Europe. I wrote, a, I was invited by a French publisher to uh, write a book for a French audience uh, which was published, and it's called Pourquoi les garçons perdent pieds et les filles se mettent en danger. Uh, and working with colleagues in France, I learned that in all of France, 
there are fewer than 6,000 kids on medication for ADD. Mm. There are more kids on medication for ADD in San Diego than there are in all of France, a nation of 67 million people. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that in the United States, medication is the first response. Let's try Adderall and see if it helps. In France, and indeed in most countries outside North America, medication is the last resort. And again, as a practicing physician and PhD psychologist, I have seen this firsthand on countless occasions. Um, so a teenage boy, grades in school are going down. They take him to the child psychiatrist who looks at the Connor scales uh, submitted by the teachers. The boy's off the chart, not paying attention, inattentive in every class. And the doctor says, well, let's try, let's try Vyvanse and see if it helps. Very helpful. Everything improves immediately. Connor scales normalize. But this boy develops side effects of the medication, loss of appetite, tremor. Parents saw an article I wrote for the New York Times on the dangers of these medications. So they bring him to me for a second opinion. And I said to this boy, I said to the parents, I first said to the parents, does your son get plenty of sleep each night? They said, oh, yeah. We make sure he's in his bedroom 9 o'clock the latest and wake him up the next morning at 6. That's nine hours. That's plenty, don't you think? So I said to the boy, do you have a video game console in your bedroom? He said, sure. I said, were you playing last night? He said, yeah. What were you playing? Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto. When did you finish? Uh, around 1.30. Okay, he's going to bed at 1.30. He's trying to get up at 6. He's getting less than five hours of sleep mm. each night. He is sleep-deprived. Sleep, sleep deprivation perfectly mimics ADHD of the inattentive variety. There is no Connor scale. There's no Vanderbilt interview that can distinguish whether this kid's not paying attention because they have ADHD versus whether they're not paying attention because they're sleep deprived. And the parents said, yeah, but the Vyvanse was so helpful. Got a call from school. Whoa, we had no idea your son was so sharp. The medication was prescribed for ADHD. It was immensely helpful. Therefore, our son has ADHD, mm -hmm. right? Bzzz, wrong. What's Vyvanse? What's Adderall? They're amphetamines. They're speed. They compensate for the sleep deprivation. Yeah, they were immensely helpful. Absolutely. But the appropriate remedy for sleep deprivation is sleep, not schedule two amphetamines. So I persuaded the parents to get the video game console out of the bedroom to limit and govern time spent on video games, which they did. And the boy is off medication and doing very well. The diagnosis made by the child psychiatrist was not correct. In this country, you've got to be on your guard because doctors in this country will prescribe medication as a first resort when it should be a last resort. Well, you've talked, to, you mentioned the video games. I know that is a, a popular topic uh, amongst our parents and one that you mentioned. Uh, and so I'd like to ask you about that. I mean, what kinds of impact are video games having on our kids? So again, the talk is titled Evidence-Based Parenting and uh, Video Games and Social Media are both big features of that talk. And that's what we uh, really did a, a good dive into this morning with the parents. So we've got lots of good research, scholarly research, published research on video games. How much time spent playing video games is too much time and how do we know? Which video games are okay to play and which are not and how do we know? We know that beyond six hours a week, there's a linear and negative association between how much time kids are spending playing video games and how well they do in school. So you need to limit time spent playing video games 
to six hours a week. And that means, based on the research, no more than 40 minutes a night on school nights, no more than an hour a day on weekends, and your minutes do not roll over. So if you go three weeks without playing video games, that doesn't mean you're allowed to binge for seven hours on a Saturday. You've thought about all the tricks. That's binge gaming, and that is harmful. <laughs> uh, and that means no video game console in the bedroom, which is also the guideline of the American Academy of Pediatrics. No screens in the bedroom. No video game consoles in the bedroom. Which games are okay to play and which are not? Your son should not be playing games where you have to kill in order to win. We have good research, which I cite in the book, showing that over time, those games change personality, not in a week or a month, but over years. Boys who are spending many hours a week playing violent video games, games like Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto, where you have to kill in order to win, those boys become less honest, less patient, more selfish. And the magnitude of that change over three years in one of the three-year longitudinal studies that I cite is pretty large. Mm. So it's your job as the parent to limit, govern, and guide what games your son is playing. Just ask him, what's the name of the game you're playing? Then go to commonsensemedia.org. I have no affiliation. It's a California-based nonprofit. commonsensemedia.org. Type in the name of the game, and it will give you a good review. And by good, I mean... A quality, a quality yeah. review by a parent with no industry influence. Type in Grand Theft Auto. It'll say absolutely not. No kid under 18 yeah. should be playing this game. And, and um, as I mentioned to the parents this morning, um, a few years back, the California State Assembly wrote a law that would make it a civil offense to sell the worst violent games. Put these games in the same category as cigarettes. Put them behind the counter. You'd have to show that you're, you'd have to show idea. Yeah. Uh, show ID, show that you're at least 18 years of age to, to buy uh, the game. But the video game industry brought suit and claimed that the California statute violated their First Amendment right of free speech. And the lawsuit went to the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court agreed with the video game industry and threw out the California statute, rendering it null and void. And, and Justice Alito wrote a concurrence in which he said, look, I've, I've read the research and I share the concerns of California parents and California lawmakers. These games are heinous. No child, no teenager should be rewarded for killing an unarmed civilian in the, as, as games like Grand Theft Auto do encourage and incentivize you to gun down unarmed civilians. Um, but Justice Alito continued, nevertheless, it is the ruling of this court that deciding what games children will play is not the job of the California State Assembly. It's the job of the parent. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned that to the parents this morning. It's your job to limit, govern, and guide what games your son is playing. It's your job when your son goes to a friend's house to call the friend's parents and say, hey, will there be a grown-up around to make sure they're not playing games like Grand Theft Auto where you get rewarded for killing civilians? And if the parent says, hey, they go in the bedroom, close the door, I'm not going to waste my time chaperoning what games the boys are playing, then you have to say to your son, I'm sorry, you are not allowed to go to that house. Well, first of all, one might make the argument that, you know, with a game titled Grand Theft Auto, you might not need a website to tell you that perhaps we shouldn't let kids play the game. Just, you know, my inexpert opinion. Um, this is gonna maybe sound like a weird question, and I admit that it's a biased question as a kid who grew up with some video games, although interestingly not violent ones. Um, I liked like weird historical video games where, you know, you build an empire and you let that kind of weird stuff. Um, is there such a thing 
as a video game that if done in a limited time frame in the right setting can be positive or are we better off just not letting kids play it at all? Again, my answer is I'm always trying to be evidence-based. Mm-hmm. What can we say based on the evidence? So we can be confident that sports games right. like Madden, NFL football, NBA basketball, FIFA soccer do not change personality. Okay, see, now you're speaking that, my language because I love In the way that ones. violent games do. Yeah. They are not harmful. Um, but your question is, well, could they be helpful? Yeah. Could they, could they build curiosity? I am skeptical. Okay. Uh, I know that video game designers are working on this, and I respect uh, uh, people who are working in that field. Uh, but I think the evidence is not there to suggest that there's any video game that actually promotes real-world creativity. And, and parents will say, yeah, but my son loves Minecraft, and he builds all this sure, great stuff. Right. But another parent said to me, you know, when the power went down, son couldn't play Minecraft, and he went in the backyard, we've got a big backyard, and tried to build a wall, just a little mud wall, and it was very difficult. In Minecraft, it's super easy. You can build a wall literally in 10 seconds (laughs) flat. Boom, 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 boom. But watching her son struggle with wet dirt on wet soil on a windy day, she said he learned more about building in three hours in in our muddy backyard than he learned in three years on Minecraft. The current state of the research, I conclude, demonstrates that real-world, hands-on experience builds creativity Mm. in a way that no video game has been shown to do. I concede that sports-based video video games are not harmful if you limit them to less than six hours a week, but I have not seen any compelling evidence that video games are constructive. Now, when I say this to well-educated audiences, people will very often cite one notorious study. This is a study of surgical residents. So these are MDs training to be surgeons and learning laparoscopic surgery. Mm-hmm. So laparoscopic surgery is a very particular surgical skill, which is not like regular surgery. Regular surgery, you're looking at the surgical field with a hemostat and a scalpel, That's not what you're doing in laparoscopic surgery. Laparoscopic surgery, you're looking at a screen. You can't see what's going on inside the patient. You're going in through a little hole and you're remotely operating tools that you're observing on a screen. It's really a video game. And what the researchers found is that surgical residents who had thousands of hours experience playing video games mastered laparoscopic surgery faster than uh, residents who had never played video games. It does seem a pretty specific It's a very specific <laughs> example, example yeah. of something in the real world which is actually very much like a video game. Right. So people will say, well, that study shows that video games has positive benefits. Okay, yeah, for the singular challenge of mastering laparoscopic surgery. But laparoscopic surgery is a very specialized challenge, very unlike what most of us do. Um, 
and, and has some very unique challenges. In laparoscopic surgery, when you move your hand to the left, the instrument's moving to the right. So you've got to not only be comfortable looking at the screen, but everything is mirror reversed in standard laparoscopic surgery. It's a very special challenge. And yeah, I concede that that uh, video gamers enjoy some advantage here. Another, another study that's often cited, this is a study of very simple eye-hand coordination in teenagers. Mm. When you see the red light, press a button. That's the entire study. And they found that boys who had thousands of hours of experience playing video games were faster than boys who had never played video games. Faster by about 0.02 seconds, <laughs> two one-hundredths of a second. Not sure the applicable now, life application. In there. a game like Halo, that's the difference between you killing the alien sure, and right? the alien killing you. <laughs> and you could argue that in certain combat infantry situations, oh, that might make a difference. But combat infantry is not the situation most of us find ourselves in as adults where hair yeah. trigger reflexes are the difference between life and death. In most of our jobs as adults, being good listeners, mm -hmm. understanding facial expression, hearing what the other person is saying is a much more useful skill. And what we have learned from the research on video games that I cite in those chapters in my book, Boys Adrift, is that that boy who spent thousands of hours playing video games is less skilled socially, yeah. less able to interpret facial expression, less able to understand the significance of different tones of voice. Interpreting tone of voice, interpreting facial expression is not hardwired. It's not innate. It's a skill. Like any other skill, it has to be practiced. And video games do not give you experience. And curiously and surprisingly, they actually undermine that skill. Yeah. So uh, let's, and that's, I mean, really fascinating. And I like that you have specific recommendations, like six hours a week, no more than 40 minutes a day. And I think that's really helpful to parents. And I do want to get to this idea of the parent really needing to be a little more of the gatekeeper, which, you know, in my line of work, we encounter this all the time. But before we get to that, you, I know the other major topic you talked about was social media. Um, and, you know, in, in my job here, I, I, it's, it's amazing the percentage of issues that come across my desk that are either revolved around social media or made worse by social media. So you shared a lot of stuff with our staff and with our parents' research you've done on social media, its impact on teenagers. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, about that portion of your talk sure. as well. So video games is kind of more of a boys' issue. When researchers look to see what teenagers are spending 20 hours a week playing violent video games, they find that boys outnumber girls. But social media is more of a girl's issue. Why is that? So researchers have found that the more time a kid spends on social media, the more likely that kid is to become anxious or depressed. And that's true for both boys and girls. But it turns out the slope of that curve is much steeper for girls than it is for boys. In other words, girls are more vulnerable to the toxic effects of social media and more likely to become more depressed and more severely depressed than a boy who spends the same amount of time on social media. And we spent a good chunk of time this morning going through that research and the various uh, studies that have come to that finding. And all of them agree that yes, there's a positive correlation between time spent on social media and the likelihood of becoming depressed. And all of them show that the slope of that curve is steeper, sometimes much steeper for girls than it is for boys. Why? So we explored why that is so. It turns out that girls and boys use social media differently. 
So to give the example I gave the parents this morning, Vanessa gets a puppy, and it's a really cute puppy. And she takes 200 pictures of her cute puppy and posts a dozen of the cutest pictures on her Instagram. But the puppy got loose, ran out in the street, got run over by a truck. The, the dog is dead. But Vanessa doesn't post a photo of the dead dog on her Instagram. Boys do. It would not be unusual for a boy to post a photo of, the, of his dead dog, his crushed, mangled corpse on his Instagram. Uh, the boy judgment and girl, of a teenage boy is not always perfect. Boy and girl both get sick. They both throw up. The boy posts a photo of his own vomit on his Instagram. Girls never do that. So now imagine a girl 12, 14, 16 years of age uh, looking at the other girl's Instagram. You know, there's Emily at the party. She, there's Madison at the game. She's having a blast. There's Vanessa with her puppy and a cute. I'm just sitting there not doing anything. My life sucks. The more time girls spend on social media, the more likely they are to become anxious and or depressed. It's a much bigger effect for girls than it is for boys. And in the presentation for parents, we went through why that is so. It's so, first of all, because girls are more invested in their social media. You know, a boy and a girl both go to a football game, but boy takes a picture of the game or the pretty cheerleader at the game. The girl's taking pictures of herself that she's posted online. If you don't like Jake's photo of the pretty cheerleader, he doesn't care. But if you don't like Emily's photo of Emily, she's going to take that personally. Personal. Yeah. This boy looking at Jake's vomit or Brett's dead dog is unlikely to want to be Jake or Brett. But girls are posting a much narrower range of their lived experience, the fun stuff, the happy stuff. And it turns out that boys greatly overestimate how interesting their own life is to other people. So boys are, to a considerable degree, insulated from the most toxic effects of social media. Girls are more vulnerable to the toxic effects of social media. Uh, boys are more vulnerable to the addictive properties of video games, as we mentioned a moment ago. Uh, so parents really need to be cautious and limit or prohibit uh, kids from using social media. So is there a certain age at which, I mean, this is the question I get, you know, five times a week. At what age should I buy my child a smartphone? Okay. So I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post uh, exploring the research on that topic, and I think we can say with confidence that no child under 13 should possess a smartphone, meaning a photo, phone that can take a photo and send a photo and surf the web. Um, and most 13-year-olds are not ready for it. Uh, so don't buy your kid a smartphone at 13. And parents say, that's totally ridiculous. Come on, my daughter's got all these activities. She's got computer coding class and, and travel team soccer. What happens if her ride doesn't show up? There are no pay phones out there. I don't want her asking a stranger for to borrow their phone. You know, I understand that. I'm the father of a teenage daughter. But that's not an argument for a smartphone. It's an argument for a dumb phone. And I, I, I showed the parents this morning the phone that my daughter had which is the same phone that her grandfather has. It is a dumb phone. It can make a phone call. It can receive a phone call, and that's all it can do. And my father-in-law says it works everywhere. It doesn't need 3G <laughs> or 4G. It works everywhere, and the, the battery lasts for months. He charges yeah. about every other month. That was my daughter's phone until her 15th birthday, and that takes care of the concern. If she gets stranded, she can use that phone to call, let us know, and we'll come pick her up. So... Where And this is going to eventually get to parents having to do hard things with their kids, which as a parent, I confess, is sometimes hard. I mean, uh, I am the father of an eight-year-old. There's already a student in that class that has a phone. And my kid has come home and said, you know, hey, when do I get a phone? And, you know, it's right now it's a clear no. But I think parents probably get worn down over time as more and more and more 
kids get phones, it becomes harder to be the outlier. What advice do you have for us as parents? And I imagine this hits on your book in the collapse of yes. parenting, you know. It uh, does. And that was a major motivation for writing the book is to empower and encourage parents to do the right thing. Don't get your eight-year-old a smartphone. Don't get your 12-year-old a smartphone. Even if all the other kids have one, don't do what other American parents are doing. The original title of that book was The Collapse of American Parenting. Mm. And the subtitle was Why Most Kids Would Now Be Better Off Raised Outside North America. But if you're not a celebrity, you don't get to choose your own title. Uh, but they did leave in a lot of the book, including the chapters showing that American kids are now 10, 20, 40 times more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, ADD, compared to kids in Europe, in Australia, in New Zealand. Um, and, and there was no difference between our countries 40 years ago. This mm. difference has emerged just over the last 30 years, really. Um, so do the right thing, even if your kid says, but all the other kids, you know, no phone in the bedroom for your teenager. Uh, you take that phone every night at nine o'clock, you switch it off and you put it in the charger, which stays in the parents' bedroom. She can have it back tomorrow morning. And she will say, and very likely, very truthfully say that all the other kids have their phones in the bedroom. And you say, well, I'm not their parent. I'm your parent and you will not have your phone in your bedroom. Those are the guidelines of the American Academy of Pediatrics. They're evidence-based. We have very good research showing that the presence of a phone in the bedroom diminishes the quantity and quality of a teenager's sleep, even if the phone is switched off. No phones in the bedroom. Okay, and you mentioned you know not being famous. There's at least 30 people that watch our podcast. So your fifth book, you might get to choose the title. Um, but that said, where, what other counsel, I mean, I can just hear, you know, my kids and our other parents who are so stressed out about this, um, you know, I mean, basically part of being a parent is sometimes having to be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Are there tools that parents can have to, to work on that? Does it get easier the more you do it? I think parents are scared they're going to lose relationship with their kids. I hear that a lot. So I do have a chapter of the book titled Enjoy. And the point of that chapter is you need to prioritize fun things to do with your kid. And you have a great advantage here because you're in San Diego. I mean, there's <laughs> so much fun stuff to do here. There's the beach. There's, there's tons. I mean, this is a world center of people come here for vacation because there's so much fun stuff to do here. You know, I've given this talk in Minot, North Dakota. It's a bit more <laughs> challenging. Yeah. Minot, there's nothing to do in Minot. To I mean, be you got to play video games it's, with your kids. It's, it's, it's <laughs> flat. There's, it's, the, the mountains are not nearby. There's nothing within two hours yeah. drive in any direction. Um, so it's a bit more challenging there. Where do you find fun stuff to do with your... Well, skeet shooting is very popular, actually, in Minot, which is fine. That's great. You make the best of what you have. But here in San Diego, there's countless fun things you can do with your daughter. And how do you choose what to do? You choose something you're good at that you, the parent, hmm. enjoy. You teach your kids something you know. So I grew up, I learned to sail at a young age, at summer camp, and I've always loved to sail, and I've taught my daughter to sail. And uh, we used to have a sailboat, we don't have it anymore, but Mar Marsh Creek State Park, they'll rent a catamaran for a day for 60 bucks, and, and so we go sailing on Marsh Creek Lake, and, and I've got 
great photos. The last time we did this, we capsized. Um, the wind was much stronger than I realized. <laughs> My daughter was was captain. I was crew. Um, and she had a great time. She said it was the best day she ever had. She loved it. Uh, the writing rope, the rope you used to write it, was not there. We actually had to be rescued. They had to come out oh on the boat gosh. and rescue us. Yeah. yeah, She had a great time. She really enjoyed it. Uh, do fun things together with your kids. Prioritize time. Find the time. Make the time. Cancel other things so that you have time to go hiking. My daughter and I do a lot of bike riding together, 20-mile bike rides. We live in an area, Chester County, Pennsylvania, with lots of hills and valleys and a lot of great bike trails. Um, find fun things to do with your kids, things that you know how to do. You know, traditionally, boys have wanted to be men. But I'm finding a growing number of men who want to be boys, who are sitting down with their nine-year-old, and the nine-year-old is teaching them video games. Don't do yeah. that. Don't do that. If you're a man, teach your son something you know. Teach your daughter something you know that you love. Do fun things together. That's the point of that chapter. And I will say to parents, as a family doctor, I'll say, you know, do you spend much time with your kids? Oh, yeah, totally. I drive them to school. I do their homework with them. Okay, that doesn't count. <laughs> that's not fun. Yeah. That's, that's chores. you got to make time to do fun things. And then when you do that, you'll find parenting is easy because when kids do fun things with you, the love just flows very easily. And then parenting is easy because then your kid doesn't want to disappoint you. They don't want to let you down. And, and parenting becomes a joy, as it should be. It's beautiful. Thank you Most for sharing that. Um, what do you think school policy should be on phones? I think school policy should be no phones at school allowed ever. Uh, we now have very good research, and this school uh, shared with parents a, an article by Jonathan Haidt mm -hmm. uh, for the Atlantic Magazine set, titled, Get Phones Out of School yep. Now. Yep. And I highly recommend that article. Jonathan Haidt summar summarizes the research showing that there's no upside to having phones in school. It distracts kids. It uh, diverts them to social media. It creates classroom management issues. It's terrible. Uh, phones have no place in the school. Uh, I encourage schools to ban the use of phones and to put up a sign, as Rocky Heights Middle School in Parker, Colorado has, at the entrance to the school, no phones allowed on this campus. If you accidentally brought your phone to school, put it in this basket. We'll keep it safe for you. You can reclaim it at the end of the day. Any student in possession of a phone, whether it's on or off, automatic three-day suspension. This school does not tolerate phones on campus. And um, I hope you'll allow me to share what you told me yesterday Absolutely. morning. Absolutely, yeah, so please do. This school, Santa Fe Christian, did a phone fast for the month of September and then surveyed students and parents mm -hmm. how they felt about not about kids not being allowed to have their phones. And the great majority of parents, you told me, something like 90% 90 of parents of thought of it parents. was a good idea. Yeah. And the great majority of students, yeah, more than 80%, said it was a bad idea. And the point I make when I see data like that is, look, what kids want is not what kids need. Kids may want pizza, french fries, potato chips, and ice cube, but what they need is broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, and cauliflower. You don't let kids call the shots. When you do let kids make decisions in domains that are not age appropriate, 
bad things happen. You get fat kids, you get kids on medication, and you get kids looking at their phone in the school at lunch. Lunchtime should be a noisy time where kids are talking with other kids. When schools allow phones in the cafeteria, the cafeteria becomes silent. I've seen this. And the kids are all looking at their phones and not talking to the person who's at the table with them. There is no place for a smartphone in a good school. Good schools, whether Christian or not, should ban the use of phones in the school. I think the evidence is very compelling. Again, I refer parents to Jonathan Haidt's article, which this school shared with all the parents. There, the evidence is clear. All you need is courage on the part of the parents and the school leadership to tell the kids, look, I know you want to have your phone at school, but you're not gonna. You know, and you shared with me that one of the girls was angry. She was like, well, how am I supposed to find my friends without my phone? She's helpless without her screen. That's what we don't want. We want kids who are comfortable navigating the real world and who can say to their friends, hey, let's meet over there at lunch who know how to arrange things in the real world without the use of a device who are not helpless without their phones. So absolutely, schools should ban phones. Okay, well, I, if you could stay one more day and just tell all our students so I don't have to, we'd sure appreciate it. Um, Dr. Sachs, thank you so much uh, for, for speaking with our parents and for encouraging us really to be parents and to bring parenting back and make those hard decisions for our kids. And uh, we just so appreciate your expertise and your knowledge and the way you share it with us. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, and again, that's the point I tried to make to the parents this morning, and I cited scripture and especially Deuteronomy 6, that this is the Christian tradition, it is the Jewish tradition, that parents need to be the first teachers of virtue to their kids. Don't let American popular culture confuse you, because American popular culture right now is undermining the authority of parents. The great thing about being at a strong Christian school like this one is that it empowers you, it can empower you, to be a better parent. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to those of you listening and watching. If this is the first time you've seen an episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast, make sure you check out other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere podcasts are available. You can watch our video podcasts on YouTube as well. We look forward to seeing you again soon.